The future of business. Future of business. Future of business. More global and more decentralized. Making sure that enterprises are a lot more responsible. Smart cities. More collaboration. Consumer-driven. Productivity. Environmental and social responsibility. Global. Human-centered. Purposeful. Individualized. Automation. Big data. Climate change. Space exploration. Renewable energy. Information security. Exciting and digital. Hello and welcome to the Future of Business podcast. I'm your host, Alison MacArthur. In this episode, we're in conversation with Bruno Roche, Chief Economist at Mars Catalyst, a think tank that challenges conventional business thinking to solve business challenges. One such initiative is the Economics of Mutuality, which considers how businesses can operate more responsibly and take into account moral and social dimensions beyond the purely financial. Beyond his role at Mars, Bruno is also currently a member of the World Economic Forum Council on Sustainable Development and has worked for the French government as a special advisor on social justice and globalisation for the G20. We sat down with Bruno for a fascinating conversation on profits and purpose and the responsibilities of our generation in driving change. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Maybe we can just start if you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into the responsible business space and uh, the Mars Catalyst. Mm, yes, thank you. So good morning, everyone, or good afternoon. Mm-hmm. Great pleasure to be here today. And uh, yes, to respond to your question, uh, I, I joined Mars about now 28 years ago, so it's a long time ago. Most of you weren't born at the time. And uh, uh, I, joined, I joined Mars because I was really intrigued by the values of the company. And after a few years doing an operational job, I was um, actually I joined this uh, organization called Catalysts, which was set up in the mid '60s, so as a, uh, it corresponded to the vision of the uh, of the management and the owner at the time that the most important and most difficult questions in business could be solved with non-traditional business approaches, and therefore Catalyst has grown from the mid '60s to what it is today. Uh, as a kind of a sole leadership uh, organization to answer um, difficult business questions, but in a way that is not traditional, using a fusion of technologies, sciences, humanities, uh, ranging from anthropology, sociology, economics, uh, mathematics, theoretical physics. And it's been a great fun. And uh, uh, today, Catalyst is made of about um, 12, 13 people around the world, based in, uh, in the US, in Europe, and in Asia, but also partnering with universities like, like Oxford and others in order to bring new knowledge to solve big business problems. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting you say that it sort of started around the 60s, so it was sort of really getting going around the time that, you know, Friedman was publishing his articles about how, you know, the sole purpose of corporations is to generate profits for mm. its shareholders. So did you um, come up, did, or did the catalyst come up against a lot of opposition because it was against the sort of ideology uh, of corporations at the time? Yes, actually, the uh, Mars has been uh, funded in the uh, almost 100 years ago, and from the beginning, uh, the owner, Forrest Mars Sr., developed this uh, this concept of mutuality, which is, in other words, called reciprocity, and uh, his vision that the, the sole purpose, well, the, the objective of the company is to promote a mutuality of benefits, starting from the uh, consumers, the customers, the government bodies, the uh, employees, uh, suppliers, and at the very end, the shareholders. So the vision of, of Mars was actually the opposite of the Milton Friedman approach. And because Mars was a uh, family is still is a family business, they actually managed to prosper and grow and thrive during the Friedman 
uh, public economy without adopting the uh, the principles of the uh, Chicago School of Thought. So it's not a surprise that two years before the crisis, actually in 2006, there was this question that was part of a, a discussion between management and the shareholder. And the question was, what should be the right level of profit? And this question was brought to me in 2006. At that time, I was just been appointed head of catalyst and chief economist for Mars. And it was probably the most interesting question that an economist could uh, could get. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact that this question was asked by an uh, owner of a company and not an NGO or not a government is, of course, remarkable. Mm-hmm. But also, it's it's not random. Okay, it's it's part of the general idea that the purpose of business, the purpose of business, is to promote. A maturity of benefits. That, that was actually the principle that led Mars' success over the last 100 years. Mm-hmm. And now the challenge we were given at the time was to transform this principle into a business model. So in order to, to decipher the natural laws that be, that uh, are behind the principle of maturity, and that's why we called it the economics of maturity. But essentially, the idea was to, uh, it was a business question as well as an ethical question, because the idea that behind the right level of profits, there is also this notion that uh, the right level of profits is critically important to define the prosperity and the long-term growth of the company. So it's not a question of how much you should give back. It's not about making money one way and sharing it afterwards. It's about leveraging the, uh, the, uh, the reciprocity principle or the reciprocity in business as a way to, to nurture the success of the company, mm-hmm. not only uh, socially and, and, and also on the planet, but also financially. So in a sense, it is a very interesting approach because most people believe that you make money first and then you share it. Essentially, uh, the intuition that was behind this idea is that the, sh- the sharing of success is a driver of success yeah. and not a byproduct. Yeah, exactly. So I guess at the moment, there's a real kind of a lack of faith in the public sector to address these issues, uh, such as climate change, wealth, Mm. uh, inequality. Um, Do you feel like the private sector has to play a role in this? And how would what form would that take? Would it be public private partnerships or um... the paradox is that we uh, the world actually is uh, has never been uh, more prosperous, Mm. more safe. Plagues, famine are uh, kind of almost have almost disappeared now. I mean, I'm old enough to remember what happened like only 20, 20, 30 years ago. So there is a paradox here that the, the world has never been so great in a sense. But in parallel, the level of trust, the level of uh, lack of well-being has never been that high. And I think it's, it's connected to the fact that we address many of these issues, famine, plagues, uh, economic prosperity. But at the same time, we also did it uh, at the expense of uh, natural resources. Mm-hmm. And we also did it in such a way that it benefit particularly the top 1% of the world. And so therefore, with this huge success came also huge um, issues, but also a lack of purpose. So why are we doing this? And um, human beings are purpose-driven people. Mm-hmm. And uh, why are we doing this? So we have a real issue. So in parallel, as you just said, the, the uh, government are uh, ill-equipped to handle uh, global issues, primarily because A, they are, most of them are really uh, overwhelmed uh, by debt, but also because nation states are limited in their actions. They, are, they, are the, they can't really act on a global basis. So the true actors of globalization are either the large multinational corporations or large organizations like large NGO. So therefore, mechanically, there is a higher need for these global actors, which have more um, latitude and more power to act on a global scale, 
to address these new issues in terms of inequality, in uh, natural resources, and also lack of purpose. So there is a mechanical, me mechanical shift from nation states to these new actors. Mm -hmm. The issue is that these new actors, they are not equipped yeah. to handle with the complexity that their new size and their new influence confer on them. And again, this is go going back to this concept of economic maturity. The purpose of this uh, research is to equip Mm -hmm. uh, the, the leadership of these new global actors to respond to the duty, mm -hmm. but also to the opportunity of addressing these uh, social issues, environmental issues and purpose issues. Yeah. Um, and could you give an example of how Mars has imbued their employees with a sense of purpose or has implemented responsible business practices? We are united by a set of common practices and I think that it's fair to say that uh, what unites the Martians as we call it, is, is how we do business and in some occasions it can really lead to a lot of uh, inspiring uh, responsible practices. But because Mars is very discreet and uh, usually we don't, uh, we don't speak too much about what we, what we do, there is a saying in my country which says that um, noise doesn't do good, and good doesn't make noise. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mars is, to the extent, is very discreet. And that's what I love about this company, because we don't want to do good things, not because we want to look good, mm -hmm. because we sense it's the right thing to do for the business. The other thing that is interesting is that Mars uh, doesn't have a foundation. Mm -hmm. So, uh, <laughs> like many companies who try to do good just by splitting the uh, business operations and the charity operation, at Mars, we try to combine the two. It's not easy. Mm -hmm. uh, we are not always successful. Uh, yeah, we w have to stay humble. But yeah. there is a real sense of uh, effort to, um, to apply as much as possible responsible practices. Not because we want to look good, because we fundamentally believe it's the right thing to do hmm? yes. for the business. Hmm? Absolutely. Yeah. I think just going on from that, like many companies at the moment, you know, they've sort of realized this important to appear socially conscious and, you know, nod to the sustainable development goals. And as such, they have sort of big CSR departments. Mm. What are some ways for stakeholders to ensure that companies are doing more than just, you know, paying lip service to these issues mm. rather than like fully integrating it into the business model? And to me, this is a real challenge. I think the, I mean, the, the uh, SDG is a great initiative because actually it gives a framework and a common language to different players. I think also, I think, will, in my view, there are three, uh, three generations of uh, responsible practices. The first one was the charity. And this is essentially what, what happened over the last hundred years. People make a lot of money, they are very successful in their business, eventually they set up a foundation, and they, they do good through the foundation. Very good with that, no problem. I, I love it. The only issue is that the charity dollar only has one life, whereas the business dollar has multiple lives. So if we want to have scalable approach to the issues of inequality and natural resources, just charity strategy will not suffice. So the second step, in my view, is what we call the CSR, the Corporate Social Responsibility. Again, very, very good. But if you go deep into uh, the motivations, it's primarily, first of all, happening at the, at the periphery of the business. And it is, it, it, that's good, but in a, bit, in a bit like what we're doing with charity, right? It's a bit closer to business, but still it's on the periphery of the business. And it's most of the time, it's, an, it's like an investment in, in good things like uh, building schools, addressing issues. Uh, okay. Very good, but again, not scalable. And many companies actually are, in a sense, doing it for corporate reputation purposes mm -hmm. and for risk mitigation purposes. Uh, not bad, but not enough. I think the third wave that we are uh, going to uh, see over the next uh, couple of, uh, the next decade is that this concept of responsible practices or reciprocity in business, mutual in business, will have to get into the core of the business and not only the periphery. Mm -hmm. And um, in my view, it is almost a revolution. 
that needs mm -hmm. to happen because it means that the way we measure value creation uh, and the way we manage value creation will have to be fundamentally changed uh, across two dimensions. The first one is that the company is no longer responsible within the legal boundaries, essentially uh, the shareholder, the employees, and the direct suppliers and, and customers. But the first revolution is that company will increasingly be more responsible across a wider ecosystem and that the legal boundaries of the firm are, not, are no longer a good description of the true ecosystem in which a company will operate. Mm -hmm. This is the first revolution, and which means actually that the value creation process will have to embrace different types of stakeholders that actually the company doesn't know how to handle today. Second revolution is that company will have to manage different forms of capital. Today, companies know very well how to manage financial capital, and we do a very good job at doing that by, by maximizing profit. In the future, in my view, that company will have to manage different forms of capital, social capital, human capital, natural capital, all right? And not only within the boundaries of the legal, uh, not only within the legal boundaries of the firm, but across a wider ecosystem, which means actually that the notion of profit will have also to be uh, amended. And in parallel to this, revolution, we, we need to think about uh, new modes of profit construction, which would, which would include the value creation or the value destruction across a wider ecosystem and across also different forms of capital. So this concept of mutual profit that we have developed within the uh, uh, economics of mutuality with Colin Mayer and with Bob Eccles is in my view critical because this notion of mutual profit, which eventually help businesses identify what is the right level of profit. And that can help also incentivize the whole company on on the new modes of profit construction. So this revolution of bringing responsible practices at the core of the business through different tools, different processes to manage and measure value creation and align the organization on on these principles is critically important to put purpose, which is actually an important strategic imperative on business into practice. Mm -hmm. Do you think the younger generation will play a large part in this push for change? Because, you know, the younger people are sort of generally, you know, maybe more socially conscious than um, previous generations. And given that so much of the value of a company consists of its human capital, mm. do you think as, you know, they go into the workforce, they're going to have different ideas of what constitutes profit? Yeah, well, the good news, well, the good thing about the younger generation is that they have less uh, things to unlearn. Mm. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know that uh, it takes much more mental energy to unlearn than to learn. So people of my generation will have to mobilize uh, more mental energy to unlearn the uh, traditional way of doing business. So I think this, you, you guys start with, uh, with a bit of an advantage here. Second thing also is that you're probably much more aware of uh, what works and what doesn't work. It doesn't make you necessarily better people, but it makes you actually more aware. And I think you are the first generation who will not be able to say, I didn't know. Okay, mm -hmm. My generation, we were very, very few to say uh, we knew. I mean, I, I really feel myself privileged to, I, I had this kind of this intuition for the last 25 years. But 25 years ago, I was really alone. Well, not alone, but I was, there were not many, okay? Mm -hmm. Today, I mean, I mean, even like every year when we uh, ask the questions to the MBA student, how many of you believe that the purpose of business is to make profit? Today, in, at, the, at the level of the MBA, only 25%, like a quarter of the class say yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, 
25 years ago, it would be like 80, 99%. So you are a much more aware generation. So therefore, because you you know, you are more responsible. So there is, with knowledge come responsibility. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and therefore, uh, because there is the same proportion of uh, smart people and good people and mm-hmm. uh, at, at your generation, at, at my generation, essentially because you are more aware and you, are more, you have more knowledge, I expect actually that your generation will embrace this idea of leveraging businesses from the core mm-hmm. to do good uh, will actually be uh, one of the markers of your generation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and do you think MBA curriculums have sort of adapted to reflect this new idea of, you know, what purpose is within an organisation or, you know, if, if not, how could they change their curriculum? But I think the curriculum of business schools just follows uh, the, uh, the practices in business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can see it actually today, sustainability, purpose, responsible businesses are part of the uh, curriculum, but still on the margin, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And finance is still the um, the the, uh, the golden uh, discipline. Actually, I, co- I mean, I studied finance myself. So I come from this world of uh, of finance, and uh, and I think in a sense it's not wrong, but I think as long as it will stay on the periphery in the form of elective, it will just attract uh, uh, just a few people, right? Or it will not be a revolution. Mm-hmm. I really believe actually that finance needs to be reformed. Yeah. As, as a function. Today, it's a function that essentially is, is about compliance. And I think finance could become an innovation uh, function. And uh, when finance will be reformed to mm-hmm. embrace this form of capital, that also finance will be reformed to take into account not only the legal stakeholders of the firm, but a wider set of stakeholders. And finance could be a tremendous, powerful tool to bring changes. So yeah. I, I personally, I always, when I work with business units, uh, my number one objective is to bring, uh, well, to, to work with the finance department mm-hmm. because they are the actors of change. They don't know it. Mm-hmm. Most of them, they don't know it because they think they are more like a compliance structure. But I think it's much more than a compliance structure. It's a co-pilot structure and it could be also innovation structure. So in a sense, to back to your, to your question, the finance curriculum mm-hmm. need to be adjusted. As long as the finance curriculum is not adjusted, it will uh, it will still be an interesting phenomenon, but not a scalable movement. Absolutely, and as you say, finance institutions rule rule the world, and um, there are starting to be sort of more exciting areas of finance, such as like impact investing, mm. where they're starting to look at like how you can solve social environmental problems through finance. But it's still you know, yeah. But the issue with impact inf- impact investing is that yeah. people believe that there is an int- implicit uh, assumption that if you do impact investing, you will have less financial performance, yeah. and which actually not true. This is something we really have to, it's, it's a myth we have to kill. Yep. Uh, and every time we uh, implemented the economics of maturity in real businesses, in poor countries or rich countries, on supply side and demand side, every time we saw that actually not only the companies that uh, uh, adopt this kind of m- uh, strategies, not only they are more, of course, more responsible and have a higher impact on, on people and planet, but they also have higher financial performance. And it's not by accident. It's because when your business mobilizes different form of resources, when you're adding resources to your business, it's a form of social, human, natural capital across a wider ecosystem. You're essentially adding resources to your business. And then on top of that, if you apply the discipline of management to manage these kind of resources intentionally, you shouldn't be surprised that your business outperform. That's normal. Yeah. Okay. So it's not a matter of either or, or. it's just like, yeah, yeah, you can do it together. But it's a matter of investment. And the energy that I like to take is more like uh, close to, to home here because consumer goods businesses uh, eventually moved uh, about yeah, 40 years ago from, from a manufacturing business to a marketing business. 
And this revolution to add a marketing function to uh, consumer goods was a real revolution. And I remember when I studied the history of businesses, there was a lot of tensions. People got fired, there was a lot of fight. But eventually today, if I look at my company, Mars, the real value of the company is in the brands. It's not in the manufacturing unit. And I think today we are a similar situation that companies that do not make the conscious decision to invest intentionally in uh, the social, human, natural capital in their ecosystem beyond the legal boundaries of the firm, we make the same strategic mistake that companies that didn't want to invest in marketing 40 years ago. The, the company that actually decided not to invest in the new capability, yeah. bringing people from the media industry, from Hollywood, from the artist world, Actually, today they are they, they, they're gone. So it's not a question of uh, looking good or doing the right thing. No, it's a question of survival. And recently we are at a similar time in history that companies that do not have this uh, intuition to invest in their ecosystem according to different of capital will just simply not be there uh, in 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. So I kind of want to just talk about sort of challenges because it's obviously still quite challenging to implement this. Like you've clearly had a very successful career and you've got a very strong sense of purpose. Has there ever been any times where you've sort of failed at your goal? And if so, like how did you overcome it? Oh my goodness, yes. I failed <laughs> so many times. Uh, you, you, you don't really know about it. <laughs> but with failing, you are, you're also learning. And I, I learned uh, very early in my, in my career that it's important to be faithful in small things. And when the odds are so resolutely against you, which happens when you want to bring innovation, especially this kind of innovation, you just have to go back to your purpose mm-hmm. and, uh, and wait and be patient. And when you face so much opposition from others, it's very easy to be angry and to, uh, to be bitter and to be discouraged. I, I chose very early in my career to forgive when I was hurt, to ask for forgiveness when I did the wrong thing or said the wrong thing and never lose sight of my purpose. So do you have any sort of advice that you would give to MBA students or anyone that's sort of looking to pursue a sort of responsible uh, career? But first of all, I'd like to, to tell you, my, mm-hmm. my dear MBA students, that mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm a father yes. of four children and uh, some of them are actually uh, in, the, uh, in the same career in, uh, in business. And w- what I teach to my children and the people of your generation is, uh, is first of all, you are a privileged generation. If I speak to you today, it's because you probably belong to the top 1% of the world. Okay. So with these blessings comes also responsibilities, right? You you have received a lot from your parents, from your generation, from so now you have a you have a responsibility to manage this talent that you received in a way that is uh, responsible and meaningful. And you will achieve this by being very conscious that you are a unique person with a unique calling and uh, with unique identity. And each one of you received a very specific target in life uh, that will actually will define who you are and what is your calling. And it takes time to identify uh, who you are and what is your calling. But it is number one challenge for uh, for you, and not only for your generation, but for any generation. The life we have is very unique and uh, it's very precious. And uh, there is so much more joy in fulfilling your calling than just being selfish or trying to fulfill the calling of other people. And um, my real advice as a, as, a, as a human being, but also as a father, is to uh, is to really find out who you are and what is your calling. And you can find it through uh, speaking to your family to understand why you are here on earth, right? And because you have chosen to to work in business, think that business is actually probably one of the most powerful tool we have today to bring um, prosperity and well-being and restoration to the world. So therefore, as future business leaders, you have to remember that uh, there is more joy to give than to receive and that there is uh, that the most successful uh, individuals, organizations, businesses are the ones that are driven by a sense of purpose that transcends self-interest. 
I think that's you know, a really thoughtful note to end on. Bruno Roche, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for joining us for this edition of the Future of Business podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please do rate, review and subscribe. We'd love to hear your feedback. And as always, if you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode, please feel free to email us at sbspodcasts at sbs.ox.ac.uk. Until next time, goodbye.